This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So on Sundays, we are going through a new series. We were going through a series on spiritual biography of a nation, sort of seeing the formation of our country, not to teach history necessarily, even though it was a teaching of history, but to actually show how God builds an individual and therefore builds nations, because it's the same pattern. Proverbs is written to a king, and yet we take it as individuals, and we will hear it as individuals because that's how God's truth works. That which is true for a nation is true in its interpretation and its translation to the individual life too. And so as a result, uh, that was a, a study that leads us here for, once the students arrived, I decided to take a hiatus from that because I will get back to that series, and I would like to go into this one, which is a very, very uh, unique picture of a similar thing but uh, it's on the book of Deuteronomy, and it's seen the rise of what we call the second nation. Uh, If the first nation is Amalek, that's what God says in Scripture, then the second nation is Israel, which we could know as just the kingdom of heaven. You have the first kingdom of this earth, and it's earthy, and then you have the second kingdom, which is the kingdom of heaven. And so it's this twos, and so you've seen me as I've been going through this series, the shadow nation rises, this is part three, we have... This book of Deuteronomy, which uh, many people would say is a singular speech of Moses, some people would say it's a series of speeches of Moses, right before the second generation is going to enter in. The first generation is dying off, or has died off now, and now you have this second generation. That's not an accident that everything is seconds in this. You have a second generation uh, that's going to follow a second leader. Uh, into a second territory, across a second body of water, to live a second life. And so it's like, wow, uh, this is quite the parallel with what we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what you're going to see is that the law can't take you into the land of promise. It's the one that follows the law. And so just as you see, even we were talking this week in, in our classes, the first five books are known as Moses. And then what is the next book? The next book is Joshua. You do know that that's the same name as Jesus, right? So the second, the, the Joshua, or you have Moses, and then boom, what follows? The crossing in, across the Jordan River into the land of promise. And you're going to see all those nations, uh, those 31 hostile empires are going to fall before the power of Joshua. And so what a parallel that we see even in our lives as you see uh, the entire law and the prophets that lead up to strangely, a 400-year period of silence, and then boom, after the 400 or the 40, (laughs) because you could look at 400, you could look at 40 years, you could look at 40 days, and once those are completed, then boom, after 40 days, I'm sorry, after 40 years, Moses is going to encounter the burning bush on the first day of the 41st year. After 40 years, on the first day of the 41st year, the the, uh, priests are going to be carrying the Ark of Covenant into the Jordan River. It's going to part. 
And so then we have 40 days. David is going to uh, come on the 41st day after, Saul, after Goliath has boasted in the valley of Elah for 40 days and suddenly on the 41st day, after 40 is completed, you're going to see the second king rise. Uh, after 40 days in the wilderness being tested, you're going to see Jesus on the 41st day in, begin his ministry on, in the land of promise in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these 40s, these uh, 40 days, 40 years, 400 is going to lead to, boom, the beginning of something new. And so that's, in a sense, what we see when I call it the shadow nation. It's a nation of shadow. Everything about it's like prophetic of a nation to come. What is that nation to come? Well, you could look at it as the kingdom of heaven. You could look at it as the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You could look at it as the church of Jesus Christ. We, in a sense, are that which he is building. We are the foothold in this earth that is ultimately going to rule and reign with him. This is the beginnings of the eternal kingdom. And so I, I really like the title, guys. That I've, I've had, uh, my titles have shifted quite a bit in this series as I've been trying to land. Okay, how do I say this? And If I told you all the different titles I had for this one, we'd just laugh to start out. So I'm not going to skip that. We'll, we'll just jump into it. But after the giants fall... I really like it, you know, bringing, I've been trying to figure out a way to get giants into a title because I really like that and that has some, some cachet value. People are intrigued with giants and so am I. I'm, I'm always intrigued with giants. And so if you read Wrestling Prayer, you're going to notice I go into the, uh, the Rephidim, the Rephaim, uh, this, this giant history, which people are like, oh, you can't believe the Bible because it has giants in it. And that's like the reason they say they can't believe the Bible. It's like, I love the Bible because it has giants in it. I mean, this is like so cool. It's giants. How amazing. And so what's interesting is there's these giants that are going to be uh, really corrupting the world uh, back in Noah's day, or before Noah, the pre-Noah uh, days, and then the flood's going to come and they're all going to be destroyed, right? So where, how'd they get here again? Uh, the Bible doesn't give us all the answers, but we do know that they did get here again, and they're going to be lingering right smack in the spot that God says, yeah, and that's my territory. And so where do they all move? They all move and camp right in God's territory. You're going to notice the same thing in your life. And I've said this before. You know, there's a chair down here in front. The devil's not after that chair. He's not attempting to pester that chair, inhabit that chair. That chair is not his great threat. There's a clock on the wall, and the devil is not after that clock. You see, he's after something very specific. He's after God's territory, God's defined purchase. So when the devil realizes what the purchase is, what God is after, then he's going to put all of his energy right there. You do know what that purchase is, right? What his territory is. It just happens to be you and me. God says, I want them. And so the devil goes, well, then I want them too. In other words, he's going after and he's setting his giants right smack in the middle of this territory. This is where the battle is. The battle isn't over that chair. It is over the human life. This is the great battle. After the giants fall. So there's a phrase, and I remember uh, this phrase coming out when Leslie and I were falling in love, and the phrase is something you may have heard too. The good is the enemy of the best. And so our desire in this time when we were first beginning our, our love story was to not settle for what the world would say is good enough. But we wanted to actually press forward and we wanted to discover something in our love story that maybe had never been discovered in our generation. 
So it's like, God, what do we need to do? I don't want to just get good enough. I don't want to just be, oh, that's, that's pretty good. That's better than you know, Chuck's love story down the street. I don't care about Chuck's love story. I want God's version of a love story. Okay, how do I go after that? I want something even better. Okay, so that's, this was a phrase that we used to throw around. Okay, so if it's good, it doesn't mean it's God's best. So that good is actually dangerous to us because it could justify us stopping short of going into the fullness of what God desires. So since this class has never heard this, I, I've shared this many, many times over the years, but the, the students that are here, I don't know if you guys have heard me uh, share this before. Some of you are like, yes, I have heard this. Well, it, it, it cannot hurt you to hear it because I've rehearsed this many times in my life. It's a key component idea in the way Leslie and I work, the way Ellerslie was even built. I mean, so it's, it's sort of part of our heritage uh, and it's called The Endless Frontier. And the, where it comes from is I used to have a uh, vocal coach. His name was Dr. Scott Martin. And he was considered one of the top five vocal coaches in the world when I was taking from him. Just a master. He was like a Yoda when it comes to uh, the human voice. And uh, so I, would, uh, I had a, a regular time each week that I would come into uh, Scott. And halfway through, Leslie would join me. And we would work on duets. And so it's part of our love story. Scott's a part of our love story. And, he's, and this whole idea is, is a part of it. Now, I, when I first came to Scott, which is a whole story in of itself, which I'm not going to go into any great detail in it, just you know, because that's not the focus of, of our message. But I, I knew that God wanted to train me in singing. This was a whole process he was walking me through. And my mom, uh, our cleaning lady, had a voice coach. And, uh, and I told my mom that I really felt God was going to lead me in singing. And so she goes, well, you know, our, our cleaning lady has a vocal coach. I'm like, I don't want our cleaning lady's vocal coach. I want like a really good vocal coach. And so then my mom takes it upon herself to get in touch with this vocal coach and to see if set up a, an interview. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. I don't want the cleaning lady's vocal coach. So I still remember showing up at this dumpy uh, music store in Denver. And I was just thinking, how could anything good come out of this? It's sort of like looking at Nazareth and going, how could there be a prophet that could come out of Nazareth? This was Nazareth, guys. This was not looking too hot. And I remember my mom uh, was using the restroom. And so I, I was talking to the guy behind the counter. Uh, and he goes, uh, you here to see Scott? And I go, yeah. Uh, and he goes, uh, how did you get in? Uh, there's a 250-person waiting list uh, to get with Scott. I'm like, what? Yeah, he's like one of the top vocal coaches in the entire world. <laughs> so my cleaning lady's vocal coach, and that's how we got in. It's because of my cleaning lady, of all things. So uh, I, I, I encountered a master at something. I, and, you know, very rarely do we have the privilege of sitting down under a master of a, of, of a skill. And it was interesting because when, when I first started training under Scott, I was thinking, okay, What's it going to take to become a professional singer? Uh, two months? Two months of training under someone like this? It's like, that. it can't be that much. Because uh, how hard is singing? This is what's going through my head. And so I'm thinking, I'm training under one of the world's best. I mean, this is a good setup for me. Okay, so if I train for two months, I'm sure I'll be a professional. And I had a lot to discover and a lot to learn. And so uh, he had me uh, training and everything he was doing, he first of all had to break me down and all my bad habits because I would sing from my throat and he's like, yeah, we don't even use the throat. And uh, he, I, I didn't know how to use my, my treble and my bass and so he had me singing with the square mouth. 
and I, I looked like an idiot, and I, and I sounded a little like Jimmy Stewart as I would talk. And I had to do everything with the square mouth. And so he would be monitoring my square mouth constantly. It's like, oh, no, no, because he was training me to control my lips because this is your treble sounds and these are your bass. Your top row of teeth, your treble, your lower row are your bass. I had no clue about that. So this is an instrument. I had no idea what an instrument I had that God had given me and I had no clue how to play it, right? And so I had to perfectly control my lips so that he could then ask me to control my treble and my bass and I could have micro-movement to it. I was like, whoa, I didn't know this. And so I was training in two months passes. He has not given me a compliment. Four months pass, no compliment. I had never received one word of encouragement from this guy. You know, when, when I first came into his office, you know what he said to me? So you want to be a singer, right? Yes. Uh, and I told him, so how good of a singer? Well, I want to be one of the best. He goes, okay, so you want to be one of the best. All right, here's what I'm going to ask of you, Eric. Six hours a day of training. Six hours. Now, I just want you to ponder that for a second. Six hours. You try and find six hours in your life to sing? No way. So what, what I, I was like, that's, uh, I was like bewildered even as he's saying it. And I go, who has six hours a day to give to singing? This is his response. Those who want to be the best. That's who. It's like, oh, okay, six hours, six hours. <laughs> Every week when I would come in, he would ask me how many hours. That's what he would ask me. So how many hours? Oh, I hated that question because never once could I have said 42 hours, right, that I, that I actually did this correct, or 49 hours, I guess, if I, take, if I did seven days a week, right? Or no, 42. 42 was correct. And uh, so I was always coming in with around two to two and a half hours a day on average, you know, so it was always this pathetic sounding number in the teens, and he was always disappointed, like, oh. Why do I give you a regular spot? He gave me a regular spot for one hour on a Friday at one every week. I mean, just an incredible thing. With that waiting list, he gave me a spot. And he's like, he kept bringing that up. Why did I give you this spot? If you're only going to give... Later I found out, I worked harder than any of his other students. <laughs> he did not tell me that the whole time. So I'm like, six hours? How does anyone do this for six hours? I was killing myself for this guy. He used to be the Olympic long-distance runner's breathing coach. So... Uh, he would, you know, in the Olympic uh, Training Center in Colorado Springs, he trained the Olympic long-distance runners how to breathe. Because when you breathe correctly, as he would say, you use your lower lung instead of your upper lung. And your lower lung, which hangs like two unused balloons behind your rib cage, right, because none of us ever use it, when you stretch it out, has the capacity to be three times larger than your upper lung. So he trained the Olympic long-distance runners to breathe. Why? Because they would actually have three times more oxygen in their body with every breath. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? So guess what? He trained me. I was running every day, and when I ran, I had to breathe correctly. You know how weird it is to breathe different when you run? So when you breathe correctly, you actually breathe into your stomach region, and then exhale. when you exhale, your chest goes out. So it's exact opposite, guys. You feel like you should run backwards when you run. Okay, so uh, I was training, and I had been training for a year. Never once did he throw me the bone of encouragement. I was killing myself for this guy. I mean, I thought two months and I would be a professional. Now it's been a year and I've never heard one word of encouragement. And I'm the sort of guy that needs a little encouragement. That's why I worked so hard for this guy. I'm working for encouragement. So finally, I got up the guts to ask the question. Bounced on my toes a little. I said, uh, Scott, how good am I? And what does he do? He chuckles. 
He goes, oh, <laughs> you got up the guts to ask, huh? Uh, <clears throat> Eric, you played soccer, didn't you? Yeah. How old were you when you played soccer? Eight, uh, when you first started. Eight, and he goes, okay, imagine you're eight years old. You've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. And he goes, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm just destroyed with that statement. It's like, what? I've been killing myself, and after a, a year of training at that level, I stink? He says, now, before you get too discouraged, you need to recognize that singing is an endless frontier. You have taken one step into an endless frontier, and you're asking me how far you've gone. You've gone one step into an endless frontier. Now, you need to realize you're one step further than 99.99% of the rest of the human race. But never pitch your tent. Boom, my life changed in that moment. I mean, it sounds strange, but that one idea altered the way I thought. Because up to that point, you know what I was looking for? I was looking for a piece of flat ground that I could pitch my tent I was looking to pitch my tent. Let's just be honest. Eric Ludy was looking to pitch his tent. I wanted to get to a certain level, which would be deemed professional, and then I could be done. Because I don't really want to work harder than this. I just want to get to this one spot that I think is far enough, then I'm done. And he knew it. So he's like, basically, Eric, you stink next to what is possible. And so as a result, when we appropriate, this is what I begin to do. I begin to appropriate that in every area of my life, which is a very biblical concept. You know, you look at the entire idea of sanctification. The idea of sanctification is constant improvement. It's a constant perfecting of that which is there. God never stops. He never, he never says, oh, you're there. We are always progressing deeper into the kingdom of heaven, into more of Christ. And as a result, I began to realize, wait a minute, what if I applied that to my marriage? You know, here the, here's this girl that I'm singing duets with that I'm going to realize is my wife in, in the future. And so I'm going to, what if I could build a marriage that could be the world's greatest marriage? What if I didn't pitch my tent and say, hey, I'm good enough. I'm better than Chuck down the street. What if I actually said, God, I want to have the greatest marriage in the world. I'm not going to pitch my tent. I'm going to pull up those tent stakes and I'm going to say, let's do this. What if I handled my kids that way? And I were to say, what if I were to build a family that is different than any family around, but I was going to continue to press forward and say, oh, I'm better than Chuck down the street. Chuck is always my illustration. I feel sorry for anyone whose name is Chuck. He's always my illustration. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Chucks. What if we took that into ministry? What if we took that just into our Christianity? I said, I don't want to just pitch my tent. It is easy after you go through Ellerslie to say, you know what? I could pitch my tent now. I'm like further than 99.99% uh, of the rest of the human race. This is a nice flat piece of earth. Oh, pull up those tent stakes. Onward march. So it's going to play into this, guys. That's like the essence of what this message is. So uh, I didn't have a good title for this screen. I actually thought about this one too. It's like, that sounds bad. The car pusher. Uh, this is a story that uh, Ian Thomas, uh, Major Ian Thomas uh, would share. And uh, he'd, he'd talk about the guy that's uh, on the side of the road uh, and you see him pushing his car down the street. And so 
this, this one guy that's passing by is sort of like, you know, this poor guy. He's pushing his car. And so, you know, there's a gas station down the road. So he helps him get his car to the gas station and, you know, fills it up with gas and even pays for it. I mean, what a, what a gift has been given to the car pusher. And then, you know, afterwards, you know, maybe it's a few hours later, the guy loops around and sees the guy lower, uh, down further down the road pushing his car again. Why would you push your car if you have been given fuel and it's been paid for? Mm-hmm. Welcome to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of us stop short because we stay in a first zone of our life and never transition into the second. You see, when you're under the law, it is up to you. God is proving that you in and of yourself do not have the capacity to live righteousness. So God has to bring us to our end to say, how you doing there pushing your car? And we're like, this is really hard. It doesn't work that way. That's right, because your car was not designed for this. You see, your car was designed to actually work. But for it to work, you're going to need something from the outside put in it. It's called fuel. So now you've been given the fuel because thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Why would we go back to attempting to do it in our own strength or to a first condition? I mean, that car is really nice. You have to admit it. I mean, it's not like you had to fix the leather seats on it. I mean, the steering wheel is nice. I mean, everything about it, really nice stereo system. However, without that fuel, that's a weighty thing to have to tug along in your life. And that's the way the life of the believer can be if they're trying to accomplish it in their first strength instead of allowing God to do it in his strength. So all of that is a foundation to get into where we are in Deuteronomy right now. So Deuteronomy, uh, Deutero uh, means second, uh, nomo means law. So the second law Actually, it's like the rehearsal of the law. Everything that is said in this, well, I shouldn't say everything. Most of what is said in Deuteronomy has already been said. It's a rehearsal. It is a speaking again or a second time of something that was already said 40 years earlier. And so 40 years earlier, this was said. Mm -hmm. And that generation is going to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief and rebellion. And so this is a second generation. Everyone in that first generation has now officially died. That's one of the things we're going to go over today. Everyone, everyone 20 years and older is now dead. When they rebelled and they, they, they didn't believe that God could pull it off and uh, deliver uh, them from all of these giant nations, everyone 20 years and older is now officially dead. And so what we have is a rehearsal, a second giving of this truth. So it's a second invite. Say, you know, the same land, they were invited in 40 years earlier and now... They're going to be invited in again. It's a second invite into the second land. Now it's going to be under a second leader, Joshua, same name as Jesus. And so what you see is all these things that we've been building on. That's what the first two sessions were about. So Moses is just catching us up. What brought us here this day? So we're going to enter into a certain portion in, in Deuteronomy 2 and, and 3, uh, where we're going to, where Moses is going to be rehearsing the overcoming of the giants. Now, these giants are the very things that hindered them from going in before. Remember the giants? These people were like grasshoppers in their sights. There's giants in the land. Oh, no. Now, you're going to see the second generation appropriate the giants very differently. They're going to appropriate them with faith. 
and we're going to see them fall. And so, and I'll, I'll try and knit this together for us as we go, but the giants are that which stopped the first generation. So what is stopping us be in our first life? And it is sin. And so these giants are always in Scripture going to be sort of symbolic of the power of sin or the control of the strongholds of sin in our life. And then you're going to see something take place. It's called the cross. And that cross is actually going to destroy our giants for us. We're not the ones that destroy our giants. Jesus is actually the one. Just like David is going to come in, the second king, he is going to nullify the power of the giants. And suddenly Israel is going to be set free. Okay, so you're going to see, and that's on the 41st day. Well, that's very similar. You have the 40 years, and then you're going to have, boom, you're going to have at the very conclusion of those 40, you're going to have the nullification of the power of the giants. And then you're going to have the taking of the land. Okay, so this is going to be symbolic, what we're going to be looking at today, the legal work of the cross, because we're, this is still going to be under the jurisdiction of Moses. And Moses is going to sort of oversee this. It's going to be on what we call the east side of the Jordan. I'll give you some maps so you can see this. But they have not crossed into the land of promise. But the land of promise, to be opened for us, we need to open up this territory. And this territory is controlled by giants. So the giants of the east, so to the east of the Jordan, you have these different names uh, for the giants. Each nation would name them something different. So you have the Emim, uh, which translates as the terrors, the horrors. And then you have the Zenzumin, the plotters, the trap layers. And then you have the Rephaim, the unusually powerful, the physical specimens of awe, just typically translated as giants. <laughs> Because Rapha, which is the word like Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, this is actually that same word, Rapha. So it's like, that's strange, heals, the, the healers? No, it's like the physically supernatural, the physically extraordinary, okay? It's sort of the, the hyperbolization of the word Rapha, right? It's like, whoa, look at this. These guys are more than healthy, uh, what do you say? That's why I'm saying the physical specimens of awe. It's like, whoa, that is some serious health there. Look at that muscle. Wow, how tall is that guy? Yeah, that's the giants, okay? The Rephaim. And then you're going to see, also hear the word Anakim. And everyone starts screaming whenever they hear the word Anakim, uh, including Nathan Johnson. Where's Nathan? When he, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, however, they're the sons of Anak, the long-necked. So, I'm not exactly sure uh, what they looked like, but uh, they were giants as well. They're going to be on the west side of the Jordan. But the giants on the east, this, these are their names. So 38 years later, remember, we're going to have a 40-year period before we're going to enter the land of promise. After 38 years, which is what Moses is going to do, it's interesting how he says this. He is basically going to skip 38 years of history of them wandering in the wilderness. It's like, no, we don't need to repeat that. He just goes straight to like 38 years and he begins to show all that matters for what is about to happen. So that's what is intriguing about this. I mean, those 38 years of wandering, it's like, yep, let, let's move on uh, from there. The crossing of the Arnon. So that might not sound like a very significant moment in the history of Israel. It's because most of us have never really studied this. The east side of the Jordan doesn't sound that critical to us. And yet it's actually where God is going to pick up in the story. And he's going to say, okay, 
here's where we pick up in our story. This is what matters. So I, I have a map for you, and on the left side, you see the Dead Sea right in the middle. Uh, well, not right in the middle, in the middle of the, the territories. And then up above that is the Jordan River, and it's going to go to the Sea of Galilee. Okay, So that's going to be a division point, and then everything to the right or to the east is going to be... Uh, we're, what we're talking about today, okay? It is not the land of promise. It is the part that we're going to need to conquer, though. We need to conquer this territory to the east. And so you see that line I have there? That's the Arnon River. So as it's talking about it, they're going to be moving north through Edom and then Moab. And they're going to be told very strictly for bad to destroy the Edomites or to destroy the Moabites. And there's reasons for that. And that is because God has promised them that land. It's really interesting. Edom is the land of Esau. And uh, Lot is going to be promised the land of Moab. And so as a result, God is still going to honor his promise to have them have this territory. So he's like, you guys don't touch it. And yet when they get up to this line, everything north of that, God says something very different. All right? Now we mean business. So we... I don't know uh, why we're zooming. Oh, I guess we're just zooming in. Uh, there's probably a reason for this as we progress. I, I think I know what it is. So we see the line at the very bottom. It looks a little better here on the, the left uh, screen. Uh, but then we're going to look at this first territory, which is going to be the territory at this time of the Amorites. Now, I notice on, on the map here, you're going to see Reuben, Gad, East Manasseh. Unfortunately, I don't have a map that I could easily access that could show you before it was divided up and shared amongst the tribes of Israel. So you're going to have to use your imagination with me adding in these territories. These are, not, these are boxes. They're not perfectly shaped uh, to match. And so this is going to be the territory that is going to be called the Land of Giants. Of course, the Northern Territory is going to be called that as well. Uh, and so this territory is the Kingdom of Bashan, also known as the Land of Giants. This whole territory is known for its giants. And so you're going to see on the lower block, Sion, king of the Amorites, and then on the top side, Og, the giant king. Do you remember he had the bedstead that was like 18 feet, and which is very intriguing to my, uh, my mind as a guy? I don't know if girls get as excited about something like this, like, that is so intriguing. I want to know more. And then God doesn't give us any more. Uh, he just sort of leaves it there. It's like, whoa, how big was this guy? And so this is the territory that we're in discussion of today. So... Uh, and there's, uh, it's a blue line, just so you can see it. That's like the Jordan River. And then as you zoom in, I, I probably should have given a different contrasting color because you can't see that very well. But you see Jericho just to the left. This is going to be the zone where the Israelites are going to cross over in the future. So when they, when they step into the land, uh, into the Jordan River, and they're going to go after Jericho, well, that's going to be right in that territory. So, but this is where we're at right now. And we're 38 years into this wandering in the wilderness. But something has changed. What is that something? The last of the, uh, the fighting men from 38 years before is now officially dead. And once that happens, there seems to be a transition and God says, move. Let's start taking territory. So Deuteronomy 2, 16 through 19. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me saying, this day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them. That's the, 
that's the descendants of Lot. Uh, it's different than the Amorites. These are Ammonites. Do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 2, 20 through 21. That was also regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zenzumin, a, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place. Deuteronomy 2, 24 through 25, and then verse 31. God says to the people of Israel, Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. See, I have begun to deliver Sion and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess this land. There is an attitude that you're going to see, and it's one of taking possession. It's one of moving forward. And it's, I've had a lot of different uh, reflections on this. I've heard a lot of different sermons on it over the years of actually like moving forward in our spiritual life, of taking a step forward, possess it. And so you're going to see a lot of that language as they begin to move into this territory of giants. I mean, this is the territory that uh, was so fearful and dreadful all those years before, and now they're actually moving in to take it. So this is, this is quite the new test for the new generation, the second generation. Deuteronomy 2.36, from Aror, which is in the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Now, this is going to be somewhat of an interesting thing for me to try and uh, portray, but do you remember those boxes that I showed you on the screen, all of that to the east of, of the Jordan? If you were to look at that as the legal work of God to prepare the way to enter the land of promise, then you're going to recognize it's an incredible parallel with the cross. And what is taking place right here is actually a work still under Moses. In other words, it's a legal work that is taking place. The law can't take them into the land of promise, but the law still needs to be dealt with. There needs to be something that nullifies the power of sin in our lives. There needs to be something that nullifies the power of these giants. And so we're going to see a legal work if you want to say it that way, I know it sounds funny to say a legal work, but this is like a mosaic work. This is something that is righteous. It is something that Moses is still overseeing, even though he can't take them into the fullness of it. He is a part of this. So we have the land of the giants, Sion, the king of the Amorites. And so that's what this section is. Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 3. Uh, oh, that's what was just taken. I'm sorry, that's post. That's what we just read. Uh, and now we're going to listen to what it says here. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. Uh, by the way, to go up the road, this whole area up to the north is Bashan. Up the road, that's quite the road. And so the way we use up the road is sort of like in your neighborhood. Yeah, I just went up the road to grab some milk. Uh, they're going to go up the road uh, to tackle Bashan. <clears throat> 
Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left." Deuteronomy 3, 4 through 6. We captured all his cities at this time, at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. 60 cities. This is like huge. It's even hard for us to comprehend how large of a territory this is. This is basically going to be two years that they're going to be going and dealing with giants. They're going to be dealing with, I mean, 60 cities. That's like tiring for me to even ponder. When I think of them taking Og, and Bashan, I'm thinking of one city. I don't know why that's always been in my head, but it's just sort of like, yeah, let's take out Og. It's like, okay, well, this is going to be one big day. We're going after one big guy who has an 18-foot bed. All right, let's do it, guys. 60 cities. I mean, that's tiring. I don't know if you've ever tried to take a city, but I have a hunch it's, it takes a little bit of time. 60 of them, and that's just one of the two territories that we're dealing with here. All these cities were fortified. Oh, wow, all of them are fortified with high walls, gates, and bars besides a great many unwalled towns. We utterly destroyed them. Isn't that an incredible summation? Moses doesn't go into great detail. He's just rehearsing the accomplishment, what God has done for them. We utterly destroyed them as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon. Deuteronomy 3.8, thus we took the land at that time from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So that which was east of the Jordan, that which is blocking the way into the land of promise. What hinders you from entering into the territory of the second, into the kingdom of heaven? What stands in the way for you? Well, we could call it sin. <laughs> That's what stands in the way. We have a rightful judgment against us. We are sinful. And therefore, there is an indictment over us, a just deserving condemnation. We have giants in the land that block the way. The first generation, the fighting men, they couldn't take them. Any more than your first life can do it. This is Jesus that must do it. And when we believe in Jesus and his work on the cross, it's incredible, but the way is opened. The way is opened into the kingdom. The way is opened into the land. That Jordan River is oftentimes symbolic to many of us that have studied it, is going to be symbolic of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the life of grace, the life of the indwelling God, the God who still goes before us. So what we see in Jesus is we're going to see one who is going to do the work, and then he's going to say, it's better for you that I go to be with the Father. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's still the one leading us, guys. He's still the head of the church, but he is going to do it via the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to take the land and the territory of promise in our life because of the legal work that he is going to do on that cross. He is going to bring down Sion and Og. He is going to displace them. He is going to establish his work, so that the way is open. Wouldn't it be strange if the way is open into the land of promise, into the fullness of the kingdom, and we were to not enter in? I mean, I mean it just doesn't make any sense. And yet, so many of us are disposed to think of what is the least amount we need to take, what is the least amount of territory that is necessary to claim where we can just enter into our rest. 
where we can pitch our tent and be fine. You're going to see the same attitude back then. So we have the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Bashan, uh, which is to the north of Og. He's defeated the land of the giants to the south of the, the land of the Amorites under Sion uh, is defeated. And so all of this is opened up. Deuteronomy 3, 12 through 13. So we took possession of this land at that time from Aurora, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead and its cities. I gave to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, the way he repeats this in Deuteronomy is somewhat disturbing to me. Okay, so look what could pop up in Eric's mind. Hold it! If this isn't the promised land, why is Moses dishing out tribal territory already? Why is he giving it to Reuben and Gad and to uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh? Excuse me, that's not the land of promise. Why would they accept that when you got the land of promise? Remember the land that flows with milk and honey? Yeah, that land. Why would anyone accept territory over here? Well, so you need to go to the book of Numbers to get the full story. Remember, Moses is just, this is his second rehearsal. And I'm sure he's bringing this up as a little jab, uh, too, in the process. Because Moses actually isn't that excited about this model, about this idea of giving land to Reuben and Gad uh, on this side of the Jordan. And so if we go back to the book of Numbers, you actually see the story in more fullness. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So this is exactly where we're at in the story, just in the book of Numbers. And from 38 years earlier, you know, so we have, oh, I'm sorry, it's, it's two years earlier. Sorry, sorry guys. It's two years earlier, right? When, well, no, it's probably even less than that. It's probably just even not that long before. Sorry, guys, my, my timetable needs to be reset here. We are right in this time. It's just we're looking at it in the book of Numbers. Sorry. We're not going back 40 years. Erase that. Now, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, this is on the east side of the Jordan, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, uh, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. What? Are you serious? Are you actually thinking of pitching your tent here? Uh-huh. They're thinking of pitching their tent here. This is a nice land. This is perfectly fine. We don't need to keep going. We're fine here. Okay. I don't know if you're seeing any parallels with your soul. Uh, this is how we are disposed we are looking for a flat piece of earth, something to call home. We don't want to actually keep going. I mean, oh, that's work. That's labor. You know how many empires are over there? We just spent two years dealing with Sion and Og. Yeah, we're, I mean, this is perfectly pleasant right here. It's not the land of promise, but hey, it's not bad. Numbers 32, 6, but Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Moses actually gets rather hot under the collar, and he actually repeats to them what happened 40 years earlier, and he says, do you remember when the spies went into the land and they came back and they gave a testimony that caused the hearts of the children of Israel to fail and to melt? You going to do that? Are you thinking of doing that? Are you saying that your God can't take this territory? Are you going to start passing around a message like that? 
And what's interesting is Reuben and Gad then sort of confer and they say, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. In fact, we'll send our fighting men in to show you that that's not what we believe. We just are going to leave our women and children here and we'll, we'll, we'll accept this as our inheritance. It's very interesting that they're going to accept something lesser. I'm just going to be blunt honest with you. Something lesser than the land of promise they will accept because they can immediately find room for their livestock. Boy, they're... Their livestock obviously hold a rather high priority for them in their life. It's like, I'm guessing they were really good at raising livestock, right? Because they had a lot of it. That seems to be what we know. And their, their, their one skill also seems to be a liability to them right now. Philippians 2.21 probably is a fairly good enunciation uh, of this. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. You see, there's a propensity for all of us. There's a first condition, and it's called sin. It's called the body of sin. And there's a second condition. It's called the body of Christ. You have the kingdom of darkness, which is the first condition. You are under the power of sin. You are not able to control yourself. You are being controlled. And then you have this kingdom, which is controlled by Jesus Christ, this kingdom of the dear son. And we can be transferred from one kingdom to the second kingdom when we humble ourselves, repent, and believe in Jesus. However, it is very easy to showcase shadows of this previous kingdom because this is what we're familiar with. When we're here, we are selfish. Life is about us. And so we reason through that lens. The kingdom of heaven, the second kingdom, is one that is about Jesus. And then Jesus turns our gaze outward and says, I want you to take your strength and spend it on them. It is selfless. It is of a very different nature. It is holy or other than the first kingdom. And so as a result, this doesn't seem like it fits. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Yeah, in this first kingdom, that's how it functions. And by the way, when you're on the east side of the Jordan, you're in a first kingdom. And we'll go into that in just a second. And this is how it's very easy. We're susceptible. And God is saying, I have more for you, but we need to press forward right now. You need something. You need to cross this Jordan River in the power of the Almighty. Pick up that Ark of Covenant. Step into it and take the territory that I have given to you. Do not fail in your hearts and melt before the coming challenge across that river. But you need to trust me. As I've led you this far, I will lead you onward. So just as when we first enter the kingdom of heaven and we believe, now we've begun. Now he says, all right, now you have access under the throne room of grace. Now you have access, basically, I'm going to say it this way, across the Jordan River where that spirit can come down and now dwell inside of you. And now you can take the territory of promise. Sion and Og are not in the territory of promise. The promise, all that God has given us, the inheritance of the kingdom is across the Jordan. This is the fullness of life. This is what God desires us to have. Don't stop short and say, oh, but I already have Jesus. Well, if you have Jesus, then you have access to all the land of promise. So if you really have Jesus, prove it. Come on. Why would you pitch your tent? The appeal of Reuben and Gad, this is enough for us. So there's a disturbance that I've dealt with in my life as a leader, 
I've had people that have gotten upset with me because they've said that I've been critical of the body of Christ. And I, I definitely don't try and be critical of the body of Christ. What I'm saying is I believe that there's something more for the body of Christ, and I don't believe we're living as we ought to live. I believe that we should be sharper, we should be stronger, we should be demonstrating more in the kingdom of heaven. That, if you call that a complaint against the body of Christ or a criticism of the body of Christ, I guess it is then. However, it's not that I am not a part of it. We're all in this together, and I would say the same thing in my life. Eric, rise up. Pull up your tent stakes. Onward, march. I have to exhort my own soul to not settle like Reuben and Gad. I have to exhort Eric just as I exhort us, just as I exhort the body of Christ at large, because we have something more to take. The cross of Christ has opened a way. It has made a way to the Father, which is the throne room of grace. And all that is needed for life and godliness has been given to us. But could you imagine having a key into a treasury and never using it to go in and access the fullness of who God is? Would that be the highest levels of stupidity or am I getting something wrong here? If you had access to the fullness of God yet did not take advantage of it because this was perfectly fine for you already. I mean, you're fine without the treasury. You're fine just knowing that oh, your, your sins are forgiven and, you, and you're, you're fine now. Are we, are we okay, God? Are we on good terms? All right, now I'm gonna live for myself. So you're going to taste of this victory and then you're gonna go back and sit in your throne and say, this is my kingdom, my domain. I don't care about God's. That's an irrational, illogical conclusion that Paul is going to poke at multiple times too. You see, it doesn't make sense to be set free and then go back into bondage. There is only one way to live and that's to keep moving forward with God. Cloud moves, you move. Pillar of fire moves, you move. God's not staying here, guys. God's going across the Jordan. So the endless frontier mentality, which is the exact opposite of Reuben and Gad, I want the fullness, all of it. I want to know the fullness of what Jesus Christ has given. I want to explore its outer reaches. I want, just imagine if we were to liken, uh, you know, you have the uh, Louisiana Purchase. Remember, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's gonna negotiate uh, the, the Louisiana Purchase, and he's going, I mean, just imagine this untamed, uncharted territory. You don't have maps, you don't know what's out there. And then imagine exploring that and saying, I want to know the whole thing. I mean, that's a lot of territory. Imagine the kingdom of heaven is so much bigger than that. I mean, even the city, have you ever studied the New Jerusalem? I don't know if, if, the, if the measurements are accurate. It's like 2,000 miles wide, 2,000 miles high, 2,000 miles deep. It's like a cube. 2,000 miles. Could you imagine? I don't know if it's an elevator type of thing. It's like, wow, what floor are we on? 2,000 miles up? I mean, how does this work? I, I, I can't describe it for you, but that's a lot of exploring to do, right? And you're going to settle for this side? Jerusalem's over here, guys. What, you're going to settle for this territory because you're livestock? That is pathetic, okay? I don't want us to be caught being pathetic. I want us to rise up and say, I want all of it. Everything Jesus Christ came to give me I want Joshua to lead me into that land and show me every inch of it. Jesus Christ, so the last shall be first and the first last. You see, when you think of yourself or you think of this first domain and you cherish it, 
you end up coming in last. That's exactly what's going to happen. Reuben, the poor guy, I mean, you have to, you sort of feel for Reuben. The, the guy just sort of fumbles his way through life, and then even his descendants fumble their way through life. They're representative of a first. He's the firstborn. And so as a result, this poor guy, in everything he does, he's just always falling short, and he's making bad choices. Like, but Reuben, Reuben. Yeah, let's not be a firstborn. Let's be born again. Let's live as twice born. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Reuben and Gad, could we have our territory first? Could, could we have our, our slice first out of the inheritance? And what are they choosing? Because they're first, they're getting the last. I mean, that's what they're getting. These guys are getting the worst of it all. But it's because they want it first. John 20 Then Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Sion and Og have fallen and Reuben and Gad have seen it. They believe in their God to that extent. But blessed are those who have not seen. There's territory over here. Blessed are those who are willing to follow God into that territory. Not just what they have witnessed, but that which God has promised. You have promised territory in front of you. It's called exceeding great and precious promises. The question is, are you going to sit on your duff and just hold on to what you do have, or are you willing to follow Jesus where he calls us to follow? Because that cloud is moving. It is moving forward into that territory. So here's our map again. And so on the left, it's basically almost all of the green stuff is going to be, uh, except for that East Manasseh side, is going to be on the left side of that water uh, area and is going to be called the Land of Promise. And so down at the bottom, you can't really see it great, but that's Esau's territory. Esau uh, is a first. So all this stuff on the right side of the screen, which is going to be to the far side of the Jordan, is going to be first territory. So it's really well named. Esau was the first out of Rebekah's womb. He's going to be born first, and then Jacob would be born second. And God is going to favor the second. It's even what he tells Rebekah ahead of time. Two nations will be in your womb. Uh, And the first will actually end up serving the younger. And so, as a result, you're seeing a pattern form. So Esau's territory down there are the Edomites. And then you're going to have Lot's territory, Moab, the Moabites, uh, the Ammonites. And uh, then above that, you're going to see Reuben. And by the way, Lot, Lot is going to choose first. Remember that? So even though, you know, you have Abraham and Lot, and Abraham says, Lot, you choose first. He chose, and what he got was lesser. It looked better at first. Boy, did he make some mistakes. I mean, he had all sorts of issues because of his choice. And you're going to see that as a constant thing. Esau's going to sell his birthright. Well, Lot, sort of the same thing. He's sort of giving up that which is righteous, that which is true, to choose what, he, what is best for him. Reuben and Gad's territory. Reuben's a first. He's symbolic of a first. And then even ironically, Manasseh is the first of Joseph's children. Manasseh and then Ephraim. And so what you see is this parallel on this side of the Jordan. This is the territory of the first. And 
it's not the territory of the second kingdom. There's a greater kingdom out there, so to accept this is to fall short. And then look at this on the left side, the kingdom of the second. Those that are born again, this is what we take. Jesus is called the second man. Joshua is the second leader under Moses, he's going to be the second one. This is the territory of the lion of the tribe of Judah. David is the second king. And so you're going to see God establish the second kingdom. This is what he desires to give us in our life. And over here, this is what God is going to prosper. This is what God is going to protect. This is where his promise lies. His promise doesn't extend over across the Jordan. That isn't his protected territory. That isn't the territory he's going to nurture. His government is going to be established here. His capital city is going to be established here. His temple is going to be established here. The worship of Jehovah is going to be established here. The work of the cross is going to be established here. This is the redemptive territory. This is the territory of our God. For each and every one of us, we need to remember that there is a first work. I mean, there is something that God wants to do in our life, and it's good, but we need to progress. We cannot stop here. We cannot just look for a place for our livestock that would be the most conducive to us. We say, God, what do you want? You put my livestock wherever you want them. That's our attitude. What do we know about this kingdom, this second kingdom? It's where Jesus is. Jesus is there. And so it's interesting because David is going to live in a cave for like 11 years. And he is going to have men who are going to leave everything and leave Saul's favor to come serve with him. And these men will love him. Even David itself means beloved. So d-ahava-d-ahava means love. And so you put a d-d on both sides and you get d-ahava-d-david. And so he's the loved one. And his men will surround him and love him, but they're going to live in a cave. They're going to have a harder environment for a season because they're entering into, but they will share in their king's glory. And the same is true for many of us. We have a hard road ahead. We have to take territory, and it doesn't just give itself to us. It's interesting because in this conquest of the land of Canaan, it's really strange because for many of us, we think that God should just like, you know, knock down all the enemies. We shouldn't have to draw a sword and swing it. He should just knock them down. Why why do we have to participate in this? But we do. He's the one that wins it, but we still need to possess it. We need to take steps forward in it. And so just as we saw Sion and Og go down, so now take this territory. The same way, by faith, the same faith that you accessed that legal working of God for you to open up this way across this Jordan. Now, by that same faith, take this territory. So for many of us, we have certain comfort zones in our life, certain elements of life that we would just like to keep the way they are. Okay, when COVID-19 came in, it really muddles up some of our comfort zones. I don't, I don't know if you had any of your comfort zones muddled, uh, but there were certain things, like for instance, I, I have a certain spot at Starbucks that I like to work, 
Okay, I know it sounds terrible because I'm not a supporter of Starbucks, even though I support them probably more than most people. <laughs> uh, I'm not a supporter of what they stand for, <laughs> but they have a really good spot that I can focus uh, really well. Uh, and I couldn't go there. Ah, my rhythm is off. And there is first territories in our life that God doesn't mind touching. It's like, how are you doing there, Eric? You, are you going to hold on to that as if that's more precious than what I want to do in you right now? which is move you into a place of discomfort maybe, which is to move you forward. We all crave comfort. We crave a spot for our livestock, okay? That, that's probably a good way of describing it. We have a life that we want to live. And as long as everything is conducive to that, we want to just settle here. But God loves us too much. And he says, could you just entrust your livestock to me? Because as long as you're holding on to that livestock, you seem to think about your livestock an awful lot. And I'm concerned that you're going to stop short of the promise. And so for all of us in here, I'd say let's just freshly yield up our livestock to Jesus Christ and let him muddle our comforts. Let him move us forward. Because if you truly, genuinely desire to follow Jesus, you need to follow the cloud when it moves. And it's moving away from... Uh, the kingdom of Sion and Og. And it's saying, we're ready to pass over into this land. It's like, but I, couldn't I just stay here? Can't we just have America the way it was before 9-11? That's what some of us used to say. You know, now it's like, couldn't we just have America before COVID? Oh, I miss it. Don't look back. Move forward. God is moving forward. And so as a result, let's not cry over the leaving behind the land of Sion and Og, let's move forward and progress into the fullness of what God has for us. And if we will do that, yes, we're going to have challenge up ahead because there's real enemies. The Anakim hide out in the mountainous regions of Hebron. Oh no, not the Anakim. Uh-huh. There are strongholds that still are to be torn down, not just in our souls, but in this world. Come saints of God. Let's progress. Don't just think about your own kingdom and your own livestock. It's time to think about God, his kingdom, his fame, his renown. His name must be known in this earth. Let's go where he is. And he is on the west side of the Jordan. Let's cross over in the power of the Holy Spirit and let's take this territory for his name, for his glory, for his honor. Father, we want to be where you are. We want to be where Jesus is. We want to be where the Holy Spirit is leading. Lord, I pray that you would take our livestock and that you would not allow us to cling to the things of this earth as if they are greater than the things of heaven. Lord, may we not crave a first territory to remain in a first condition any longer. May we crave the second life, the life that is greater, the eternal one, May we crave the second leader, not the leader of the flesh and self, but the leader known as Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we yield to you, to your mastery. May this grand work of the cross that has opened up a way for us to take hold of your kingdom, may we not take it lightly today, but may we cherish it afresh in our heart. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have done. We submit to you in the name of Jesus, we pray this, amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. 
At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.